Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We'll be reading chapter 8. Now, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is none, no one but God. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, but no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who, who have knowledge, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against you brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. On in our body and uh, so much that causes our hearts to be heavy. And I'd ask if we could bow our heads one more time to lift up our church body and to uh, focus our hearts before we hear his word. Oh Lord, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of grief... In the midst of hard times, Lord, we rest in the fact that uh, you know all things. You feel and understand and hear our prayers and our fear, Lord. And we ask that even in this time that we would be able to rejoice together, Father, because we are yours. And I pray that no matter what's going on this morning, uh, even as we hear these things, that we would be ready to hear, hear your word together that you would uh, focus our hearts to hear what you would have for us and that you would clear uh, my own mind and my own heart that I might be able to speak your word and I would be able to speak it rightly and truthfully. Father, I thank you that we can gather here freely. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, another Thanksgiving has come and gone and I hope you had a great one with friends or family. And with another Thanksgiving uh, having gone, it means another Black Friday has gone. Which means that somebody here, you don't have to raise your hand, somebody here has an appliance sitting in their kitchen in a box that will most likely remain that way until next Black Friday because they really honestly have no clue what it does. In fact, until they stepped down that aisle in Target, they probably didn't know that such an appliance existed. But... In the big black tag that said sale, it said originally $200 only for 60 So how could you not buy it? You have to. 
Who cares what it does? It can do anything. It was a great deal. Black Friday is crazy. I don't dare take Ellie there, all four foot eleven of her, because some poor six foot five guy would get trampled on her way to finding cheap cushions. It's dangerous. You've got to watch out. We went to two different targets to find Christmas lights, and I'm pretty sure there's people with sprained ankles. Because it's crazy on that day, because everyone is zeroed in on what they want. As soon as those doors open, everything else fades. It's like the vignette filter on Instagram, and all you can see is what's in the center. That is my goal. Nothing else matters. No one else matters. So long as I get what I want, when those doors open and I'm free to roam, who cares what happens to anyone else? Sadly, isn't our church sometimes guilty of the same tendencies? We know what we want in our faith and we're willing to do whatever to whomever to get it. The doors open to our uh, freedom in Christ and suddenly the edges blur and all that matters is our own trajectory and we forget about those around us, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We use our freedom in Christ for our own gain rather than for the body. And who can blame us? That's what our culture tells us is the norm, right? Right? That all that matters is you, so long as you get what you want, so long as you can be the best that you can be, uh, nothing else matters. It starts with kids in school. Be the best. Get on the kindergarten's dean's list. Be on the best sports team. Uh, Learn how to get the best grades. Learn the best. Be the best kid that you can be. And then you go to college and it's this one-stop shop for self-gratification. You want to explore relationships in any way you want? Go for it. No one's going to stop you. You want to be on the honor roll? You want to be the top of your class? Work your butt off. Who cares? You want to be that guy who's absolutely jacked and ripped by the end of graduation? You can spend every day in the gym and get C's on all your classes. No one's going to stop you. But it doesn't stop there. The workplace tells us... Get up that ladder, climb the ladder, pursue the American dream. And what's worse is it says, you know what? Backstabbing and betrayal, sometimes necessary. Who cares about the people around you? Even friendship is not exempt. We look at acquaintances, people that could potentially be our friends. Uh, We look at one another, kind of screen them socially. We judge them, but we call it networking. Our whole culture tells us, do what you want. Be the best you. And sadly, this has wormed its way into the church as well. Yet often for the church, our defense of this mindset, of this lifestyle, is our freedom in Christ. It's our ticket to living how we want. We have been freed in Christ to do whatever we want. This was true of the Corinthian church. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about uh, singleness, about marriage, about purity. But now Paul shifts gears in chapter 8 because he sees that the freedom that the Corinthians had 
was resulting in self-indulgence. And it was threatening the body. As we look at this passage today, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we should miss, we should not miss that we too can fall into these same mistakes. We have not been given freedom that we might pursue the same self-seeking mindset of the world. No. Instead, as we will see in this passage, the great freedom that we have in Christ results in a greater sacrifice for the body of Christ. This great freedom we have in Christ Jesus results in a greater sacrifice, a greater love for the body of Christ. Paul's response to the Corinthians on the issue of idols uh, gives us a framework for how we are to function with our freedom as a body. It leads us to understanding how uh, we as a body should function in a way that goes against the cultural norm of today. Instead, the great freedom we have in Christ should result in a greater sacrifice and greater love for the body of Christ. As we examine uh, this freedom we believers have in Christ, we must first realize this. Our freedom is not founded in knowledge, but in love. The freedom that became ours in Christ is not based on the knowledge that we have, but in love. Let's read uh, verses 1 through 3 as we look at this. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Picture, if you will, Corinth at the time of the early church. It was a culture much like our own, saturated with the obsession of knowledge. Each neighborhood, uh, district, uh, each village had a local god or goddess, which meant that a temple was never far away. And while one could find devoted worshippers there, it was far more common for this uh, temple to be a venue for discussion, for uh, spiritual and, and intellectual conversation, and even often for meals. If it was evening, you might have seen the lamps lit in the temple courtyard as uh, people enjoyed a meal. One night it might be a, a recently um, sacrificed uh, lamb or, or, or pig being uh, devoured by the priests and some influential people that they had invited. Another night it might have been that the space was rented out in the temple and that after a different animal was sacrificed, that a bunch of different wealthy families were getting together and enjoying a meal. For most, participating in such a meal would have been rare. For those invited, it was more of a status symbol. They probably would have laughed out loud going to and from the temple so that all knew that they that night were part of that cool group, that in crowd. Some of the Christians at Corinth, in the church of Corinth, had been a part of this group before they uh, knew Christ. And now, since uh, coming to Christ, some of them had been invited back. After all, since there was a curiosity towards all things spiritual, other people wanted to know about this new cult invite involving this guy named Jesus. But soon as they were invited, the topic came up of whether it was okay to go. 
was it okay to participate in these meals? For they were not overtly religious, but the meat had been offered to a god that occupied that temple. So were these brothers participating in idol worship? For the Corinthians, like any other issue, the logical next step was to bring the issue before Paul. The Christians who were participating in these meals said, Well, uh, we possess knowledge, so it's okay. They wrote Paul and told him that all of us possess knowledge. We know that there is only one God, and therefore this can't be a bad thing, because in that case, a temple is just another building. And uh, this sacrificed or ritualized turkey that they're eating is only just happens to be in this certain building offered and chanted over, but the chanting really means nothing because there's only one God, right? It doesn't matter. But what they were also hoping Paul didn't realize was that these meals also weren't hurting their social standing either. They were in the elite circle and their freedom in Christ provided what seemed to be the best of both worlds, free from sin, guilt, and shame, and also able to enjoy the spoils of the world because they had knowledge. The knowledge that there was only one God, and thus these idols and temples meant nothing. We should hear this acknowledging that while most of us are probably not tempted by a perfectly roasted pig at a nearby temple, we are tempted to brandish our freedom in the same way. We know uh, that we are free and we use it as license to do certain things. The potential sin in question may not be idolatry. For some it may be that we are able and saying contently that we can sit in front of the TV and absorb what is on and say, it doesn't matter if there's nudity, it doesn't matter if this guy's taking his shirt off, it doesn't matter if this woman is showing as much cleavage as possible for TV, it doesn't matter how gory this show gets, it doesn't matter how void of anything spiritual it is. We've been freed. And we brandish our freedom in much the same way. We are free because we have knowledge in Christ, right? Well, we, like the Corinthians, should not be surprised that Paul is not blind to all of this. He has heard their catchphrase in verse 1, All of us possess knowledge. And he responds to their phrase in agreement. It's true. All members of the body of Christ do possess knowledge. If you are a part of the body, you know that there is but one God. Yet, Paul says... The way that you're yielding this power, the way that you're brandishing it, is only serving to puff yourself up. This knowledge is only for yourself. And it translates into a selfish arrogance. Knowledge-based freedom serves only to puff up those bearing it. If we find ourselves reasoning that we have knowledge in God and that therefore we have freedom in Christ and we're using it for our own sake, we must realize that it's purely self-seeking. It's only selfish and it will only puff us up. Paul makes all this transparent as he contrasts in verse 2 that love, on the other hand, builds up. Knowledge and love don't seem like two natural opposites. And yet, as Paul sculpts the statue of our selfishness, we find that the only way to take our eyes off of our selfish desires is indeed through love. Love is other-oriented behavior. Freedom based in love causes the church to be built up 
It stops looking inwards and it looks outward at how the body might be built up by our actions. It looks and says, how might the church be better tomorrow than it is today because of how I am loving? Yet for many, the former is the greater reality. We've been told the truths of our freedom in Christ so many times that we can disarm any potential sin, potentially sinful or less than God-honoring situations in an instant. We spouted John 3.16 for so long that any time we need justification for some sort of our actions, it comes out. It's our, it's our card to show that we have the right to do something. Yet, like the Corinthians, this isn't a good thing. For if this is our reality, Paul points out in verse 2, we don't get it yet. We don't know as we ought to know. If the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ serves only to satisfy our worldly cravings, it's not knowledge at all. If our freedom is self-seeking, we have not realized the, the great truth of our freedom in Christ. For if we understood... We understand that our freedom is not founded in knowledge, but in love. And we would understand that it did not come the moment that we gained knowledge. Our freedom did not come when we figured out how to wield this freedom for our advantage. It did not come when we knew, but when we were known. Because our freedom came when God knew us. Our freedom came because He first loved us and sent His Son to die on the cross. Our freedom is founded in His love for us. Which is why Paul can say that our freedom is based not in our knowledge, but in love. All people on this earth are known by God, and so our freedom is found as we love Him. Love is the basis for our freedom. It is the basis in that we have been uh, being known by have been uh, known by him it is the basis in that we too love God our freedom is founded in no, not in knowledge but in love and as we realize this we're able to see uh, that uh, we are able to function not in self-oriented knowledge but in other oriented love However, while our freedom is not based in knowledge, that doesn't mean that knowledge is useless. We don't just get to throw it out. It does not have a purpose. Because next in these verses, Paul wants to point out this. Our ability to love requires correct knowledge of who God is. Our ability to love one another as a church requires the knowledge of our great God. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul's discussion on knowledge and love comes into play as he now returns to the topic of idols and of food. It is true, Paul says. An idol has no true existence. And there is no God but one. These knowledge-empowered Corinthians thought that they had an airtight case with these two statements. To them, nothing else mattered. 
If an idol didn't matter and there was only one God, then their freedom justified eating anywhere and with anyone. Well, just as before, Paul pulls back the curtain on their argument uh, to expose the writhing inconsistencies underneath. Paul takes their argument and he repeats it back to them, but in doing so exposes the greater reality of their current functioning and their current culture. He manages to remind them that there are so-called gods in this world. There are, many that are cons- that are, there are many that are considered gods and many considered lords. For the Corinthians, uh, these temples all around all house, house so-called gods. And the, the uh, imperial royalty had set themselves up so that when they died, they became deities, lords, on the same level almost as these gods. So it made sense that there were so-called lords and gods. And in this statement, Paul affirms that there is indeed a spiritual battle that is going on. There are so-called gods and lords, and their seriousness should not be taken lightly. Though they in of themselves have no power or authority, the devil prowls around like a lion, hooking into whatever form of influence that he can. Our North American culture is so far removed from this idea of of gods and lords, and yet in other parts of the world, Satan still very primarily functions in other religions. Growing up in Japan, I saw this firsthand. We would have summer missionaries that would come visit us, and we would often take them right downtown to one of the biggest temples in Tokyo. It would be as if in the middle of the loop there was this massive shrine, probably almost the entire size of the loop. And when you go in, it's right downtown, and all of a sudden there's a forest, and you follow a a gravel path that is probably as wide as this sanctuary. And you're walking down for about a half mile. And after you go down this pathway for a little while, you turn a corner, and there before you is this huge uh, wooden wall that surrounds this big square courtyard. And as you approach the gate to go into this uh, temple, on the left uh, there is a a big fountain or a big basin with water, and on the outside is a trough uh, with ladles. And you'll see people before entering go up to this, uh, this trough and take one of the ladles and sprinkle some of the water on their hands to rinse them. And then they sprinkle it on their face and then they'll even take this ladle touched by thousands and and touch it to their mouth to cleanse the inside of their mouth before they enter. And then in the courtyard, if you go to the far side, it's about half the size of a football field and you go in on the far side and there's a wall probably uh, 50 feet or 30 feet long and on it are pegs. And on each peg is uh, dozens of of little wooden-like ornaments that you can buy that have prayers on them prayers offered to Buddha in the hopes that uh, family will remain safe. That for the rest of their trip there in Tokyo, that tourists will have an enjoyable time. That a family member will be healed. That uh, money will come their way. That they will receive blessings. All for a small price given, uh, prayed and offered to Buddha. And just beyond that, up a, a set of stairs much like this, there's a big room, and it's, uh, it's enclosed by a, a glass wall. And on the other side of the wall is, is a um, gold-inlaid Buddha sitting solemnly. 
And around it are other golden decorations and the whole room is silent and because of incense it's hazy. And yet in front the the solemnness of the entire situation is broken by the clinking of money going into the troughs in front of it. And then you can hear people clapping, hoping that uh, Buddha will give them attention as they offer up a prayer. There's a very real sense of darkness there. And often when we would uh, take missionaries, while uh, the, the way up to the temple would be a, a fun time, on the way back it would often be more solemn and more serious because the weight of the spiritual battle that they were about to face that summer was all the more real. There is a spiritual battle that is going on. And our culture does not have such strong religious ties, yet I believe that here in our culture the devil has also found his ways in. He knows where the gods and the lords are. He is able to infiltrate with just as much influence as he does in that temple. And we should not think for a second that because we do not enter a temple rinsing our hands, that we do not rinse our mouths or offer prayers on a wall, that we are not, that the devil does not prey upon our temptations in this culture. There are people around us whose hope has been put in something as equally as flimsy. We have not escaped religion as a nation. We have merely replaced it. Whereas the devil in many of those countries functions primarily in the spiritual. Here, it has been replaced by the physical. His go-to moves and his biggest wins not don't come as we step into a temple, but into a relationship. As we step into a store and are tempted by consumerism, as we turn on the TV, the devil knows that he has an opportunity to slip and get into our minds. And we should not downplay that as believers. There's a very real spiritual battle that is going on. And it is fought in the everyday of our lives. Yet, yet, as verse 6 says, for us followers of Jesus Christ, there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Yet for us, the church, we are bookended inside of this grand story that has been orchestrated by God the Father. These words of Paul in verse 6 echo one of the great theological uh, confessions of the Old Testament where Moses in Deuteronomy 6 for declares to the people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul reminds us that in the midst of such a great battle, that there is but one true God. That though uh, in this life uh, we are well aware of the struggles of our neighbors, of our friends, of our brothers, as we heard this morning, people in our church, that we are being watched over by the one true God who is omnipresent and who knows our every struggle. That here as we worship together, that no matter what you came in with, that God is over all-powerful. He is not overwhelmed because He is the one true God through whom are all things and for whom we exist. That while we may be coming in this morning wondering how this weekend we could have celebrated a day of Thanksgiving when there's so much violence, so many protests going on in our city, that God is not blindsided by this. Nor is his great sovereign plan put into jeopardy by all of this, by any of the brokenness in our city. God does not feel threatened by the ploys of the devil 
our culture has not shifted so far from him that he feels incapable of defeating the darkness that has permeated it. Because our God has already won when he sent one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross and resurrection, defeated death and Satan. Therefore, all the plans of Satan will one day be thwarted. All the darkness in our culture will one day come to an end, and one day every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are in a battle, but the battle has already been won. There are so many so-called gods and lords around us, but we serve the one true God and the one Lord Jesus Christ. And so with this wonderful statement, we must know that our knowledge is not useless, but instead that we have been not using it correctly. It's like if we have a puzzle before us and we can't figure out why the last pieces will not fit correctly. And then we take one out and realize that it was in the wrong place all along. And as we switch it around, we realize that it all fits together. Fits together. That is what our knowledge is. It is absolutely essential. Our culture, just like in the day of Corinth, is uh, seeped with knowledge. Everyone wants to know everything. We have instant access to news and everything. And in this culture, we must use our knowledge. We must know who we are, that we serve one Lord, Jesus Christ. We must know what we believe. It's completely necessary if we hope to serve and love one another. And it's completely necessary if we hope to affect the culture around us. We must not be blind to the ploys of the devil, that there are so-called gods and lords, and that indeed many have given into uh, the devil's uh, plans in our culture in some ways we also must not forget that we have this great puzzle piece that fits and answers back to this society. That we have the knowledge of the one true God. Our ability to love requires a correct understanding of who God is. You and I have been redeemed in this world. As we understand our freedom, the great freedom we have in Christ, we must remember first that it is not founded in that knowledge, but it is founded in love. But we must also remember that our knowledge is necessary for an ability to love. Yet for the Corinthians, the knowledge of who God was was not translating into correct practice. Which is why Paul next points out this, and and we will see in our passage that our knowledge of Christ this great truth that we just saw in verse 6 can sometimes, unfortunately, get in the way of loving like Christ. Our knowledge of Christ can get in the way of loving like Christ. The knowledge of our Savior can hinder us from loving how we are to as a body. Let's look at verses 7 through 12. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? 
And by your knowledge, this weak person has destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Those in the church were engaging uh, in these social meals, but they were also inviting their weaker brothers to do so as well. These weaker brothers had come out of a lifestyle in which these idols were a very real thing. It would be as if I, uh, since Carrie's not here, I can pick on him, it would be as if I knew that Carrie was terrified of gnomes and said, Carrie, we're going to get through this. Come to my house for dinner. And sitting at the places where there were no people were gnomes. And if for the entire meal I had Carrie staring across at a gnome. And indeed, we prayed and talked to the gnomes and prayed with them as if they were in the room. I said, Carrie, you're just going to get over this. It would be ridiculous. And the brothers, struggling with the idea that these idols were real, felt as if their conscience was being uh, turned against, that they were sinning against God. And is this reality of a weak but changing conscience that Paul reminds the church of? That if a a moral compass of a man is, is off, it does not just change back overnight. That it takes a slow, incremental development and change. So in the meantime, as it says in verse 7, uh, some, through former association with idols, ate the food, and their conscience was defiled. Though Paul will later talk uh, about the food itself, uh, the question before them is this. He points out to them, do you not realize what you are doing to your weaker brother? It's like a parent that comes into a teenager's room and and the teenager has gotten home from school and suddenly feels sick and the parent says, well, what's going on? He said, well, I don't know why I'm sick. I drank that half gallon of milk. There was some Doritos in the fridge or in the closet and uh, there was also an old sandwich. I don't know when it was from. The parent says, let me explain this back again. You drank that half gallon of milk, which I'm pretty sure was expired. You took those Doritos that were fairly stale and you ate that sandwich was from two weeks ago and you don't know why you feel sick. And the teenager pauses and goes on. I, I guess that makes sense. This is what Paul does to the church. They don't see their own foolish mistake. So Paul lays it out before them. Don't you see how this might be a problem? Don't you see that you're causing them, their conscience to be questioned by eating? Like parents often want to do. I have no doubt that Paul wanted to shout, What is wrong with you? What is in your brain? Why would you do this to your brothers in Christ? Why didn't you think about this? But more than just eating the wrong things, Paul points out that there's something much larger at stake. The knowledge of these brothers was not further weakened, but it was at risk of destroying them. They were using their knowledge of who Christ was not to build up the church, but to puff themselves up, and their brothers were suffering the consequences. After spelling this out, Paul adds at the end of verse 11 that these were brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. You can't just play around with their conscience. They've been redeemed, and you're threatening to throw them back into the habits of their sin. This is the grave error that the church was making. That as they sinned, they sinned not only against their brothers, but against Christ, for we are the body of Christ. He is the head, and we are his body. And so if we sin against one another, we sin against Christ. 
The church of Corinth had ignored one another for the sake of their own knowledge. And we often have the temptation to do the same. We have been freed in Christ, but there is a temptation to live still for ourselves, using that freedom as reason to do so. But praise God that we have been freed. Because often, our freedom can get in the way. And so our knowledge of Christ gets in the way of loving like Christ. That we have the knowledge of the one true God cannot end up, can end up not as the basis for love, but as self-satisfaction. We, like the Corinthians, can justify our own desires. The most commonly referenced example with this is of alcohol in the church today. Right? Can I take a glass of wine? Or should I drink a glass of wine? But if I do so, it's for my own right. And, and I may be not realizing that a, a brother next to me or, or someone in the church next to me uh, before Christ struggled with alcoholism. But more than just that, we can't get stuck there as our church likes to do. There may be some who before Christ found their identity and all that they wore, the car that they drove, the house that they had. And now, uh, being in Christ, they still very much struggle with finding their identity in all that they have. And the way that we talk after church may give them back into those desires. We also could not realize that someone may have grown up unchecked in what they watched and what they listened to, that they formed their relationships, they formed the way they treated the men and women around them uh, after TV shows, after secular songs and movies. And so now that they are in Christ, they're struggling against that. And as we invite them over to watch that or to see that or talk about it, we are tempting to put them back into where that was the standard. And in doing so, our knowledge of Christ can get in the way of loving like Christ. Paul points out that our freedom is founded not in knowledge, but in love. And that, uh, that knowledge, though, gives basis to our love. And yet, instead of using this for our own desires, letting it get in the way of loving like Christ, we must realize finally in the last verse this. Our love of the body is put to the test by sacrifice for the body. That as uh, hope, that we hope to demonstrate a a greater love for the body of Christ, that our love for that body most often uh, takes the form of sacrifice. And that's why Paul closes in verse 13 saying this, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, Paul's example is very specific to this situation, at least I hope so, because giving up meat would be tough. But we can draw from this the general principle. Paul is willing to do whatever it takes for his brother in Christ. He sees what is at stake and he says, no pun intended, and he says, this is what I can do. I can give up meat. We should be willing to sacrifice for our body. The brothers were, the the empowered, knowledgeable brothers in Christ uh, thought only about themselves. And this is something our church needs to hear. We are often great at loving one another. We're great at being there for one another, serving one another, until it hurts, until it gets uncomfortable, until we need to sacrifice, and then we're tempted to back off, to tap out. Yet that's what we are called to do. We are called to serve 
and to love and sacrifice one another. We must not get sucked into the same temptation as the Corinthians. We must love going further out of our comfort zone to love the people around us, willing to, if necessary, give up meat, realizing that there may be a brother or sister that was struggling with alcoholism beforehand and saying, I don't struggle with this, but I'm willing to give it up for the sake of their uh, spiritual walk, for the sake of building up our body. Saying, I have a, no problem and there's no, nothing about the way that I dress that's causing me to struggle. But if I start talking to you and talking to you about clothes that I know I'm going to cause you to fall back into that temptation, then I'm going to stop. I'm going to give up these TV shows. I'm going to stop watching this or I'm not going to talk about this. And instead, I'm going to engage in something else for the sake of your faith and our body. So often, our love for the body is demonstrated through sacrifice for the body. And we must be looking for how we might sacrifice for their sake. We have been given a great freedom in Christ. And that freedom results in a greater sacrifice for the body of Christ. As we saw with uh, Paul's great confession, we have the knowledge of our great God. And that great God, our uh, only one and true God, sent His Son, the Savior, to die uh, for our sins so that we could be known by Him and that we may love Him, the basis for our freedom. But yet we need to be wary of not misusing that freedom. And instead, going above and beyond. Realizing that so often our love for the body is demonstrated by sacrifice for the body of Christ. It's easy to love one another when it doesn't hurt. But our great freedom in Christ should result in a greater love for the body of Christ. So often in the form of sacrifice. How will we this week demonstrate that love? Is there something that is going on in in a fellow brother or sister's life that nobody knows about because no one's gotten close enough to see or to feel it? We need to step up. It's going to hurt. It's going to take some sacrifice. But I would rather we all need to hurt for a little bit than to turn around one day and see a brother or sister that is shriveled up, a shell of, of the former Christian that they used to be. All because we couldn't sacrifice. Who is struggling around us, but we haven't gotten close enough to see? Or maybe there is a brother or sister who we know that something's going on in their life. We talked about various things already, but maybe there's something else that's going on and we need to be willing to say, this isn't a problem for me, but for the sake of you, I will stop. Or for the sake of my brother or sister, I will come alongside of you. Because the great love that we have in Christ results in a great, a great freedom we have in Christ results in a greater love for the body of Christ. It's not just the easy love. It's not just the after church I give you a hug but I have no clue what's going on in your life, love. It is going deeper. The great freedom we have in Christ is not for ourselves. It is for the sake of our body. How will we love one another, showing one another a greater love in Christ that so often needs to go deeper and get dirty and to get intimate? We have been given this great freedom in Christ. How will we use it to show a greater love for the body? Let's pray.